Before we get to today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Veracross. With a single record database and the strongest API in the industry, Veracross is the leading SIS provider for private and independent schools, and it's now available in Australia. Support us by supporting them, so visit veracross.com backslash edleaders to learn more. Now let's get to today's show. All right, welcome to Ed Leaders, the podcast covering all the interesting ideas about leadership, strategy, culture, and the business of K-12 education. I'm your host, Luke Kelly, and joining me each week in the chair is my co-host and colleague, Matthew Irving. Before we get started, if you haven't already, you should sign up to the weekly email sent out by the team at Ed Leaders. Matthew, what should someone expect in the email if they sign up? Well, look, I'm really pleased you asked that question, uh, and now I know that you ask that question uh, every episode. You know, I was thinking about this this morning. You know, in our inboxes, we get newsletters, we get people trying to sell us stuff every single day. Um, and I don't know about you, Luke, but it's it, you just get inundated and you just press delete. Um, but unlike uh, other newsletters, this one I actually look forward to. I actually read it. Um, and uh, so, you know, I just encourage people out there, sign up uh, and read it and just continue to delete all the other stuff. All right, I'm going to give that a 9 out of 10. Well played today, Matt. You can sign up for the newsletter the newsletter at edleaders.com.au. Now on to today's guest, Fleur Johnston. Fleur is the founder and CEO of PeopleBench, a school workforce strategy company based in Brisbane. Prior to this, she's done organizational design and strategy consulting and also has over 15 years experience in government change management and HR roles. Suffice to say, I think she knows a thing or two about organizing people to maximize performance. So without further ado, let's get to it. Fleur, welcome to the show. Thanks, Luke. Now, we love to, and uh, you might know this as a listener, we love to start uh, the podcast with a little bit of about your professional journey and how you came to be the founder of PeopleBench. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Um, and it's just a huge privilege to be having this conversation with you today. I'm a massive fan of, of um, the discussions that you're facilitating. And part of what I love, loved about the podcast is actually the different diverse professional perspectives that you're bringing together to, to talk about education. So my background is not as an educator. I'm one of these folks that's come in from the outside and um, been very passionate about the work that happens in the sector for some time. My technical and professional background is in organisational psychology. I've spent, as you say, the best part of the first couple of decades, call it a fat 16 years in um, public administration. I started my career in the Department of Premier and Cabinet here in Queensland. Um, And that was just such a privileged place to start a career, I think, um, and was very uh, values aligned with who I was starting to become and and continuing to become as a a human. this idea that we ultimately do have limited public resources to invest in all of the different things that we want to see great outcomes for in the community. Um, And I guess the opportunity to start my career in Premier and Cabinet and in an area that was focused on workforce in that organisation at the time um, was just this huge opportunity to be bitten by the bug of impact in the community. And um, you sort of look back on your career at the the stage that I'm at now and you can't ever possibly know how the dots will start to connect. But it really was pivotal um, to start there. 
So I then got sucked into big multi-agency transformations where we were working with many government agencies, again, asking questions about how can we make the services we provide impactful and also experienced by members of the community in ways which is not overwhelming or complex? How can we provide access to important services in ways that genuinely meet the needs of the community? Um, fast forward a little bit, by the early 2000s, I'd spent a lot of time working on very large technical HRIS and payroll implementations, some of the largest in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, but I was not the, the clever technical genius. There were lots of those working on, on those projects. I was you know, one of the lucky people who got asked to just get the humans to do the right thing around those system implementations. Um, and, and that really, again, gave me an insight into when we do these big system implementations and they are helpful um, versus when they're not. Um, and particularly when it comes to things like HROs and payroll systems, they can be pretty dry and we can feel like they really just belong to those, you know, folks, and I use the term affectionately, the HR nerds, I identify as one of them, um, in head office, actually translating that to have an impact for the people who are doing the work at the front line in the community is pretty tricky and, again, was an early theme. So by the early 2000s, I'd taken a bit of a break. My husband and I took off to, to the UK and found myself working in the centre of the health system there um, when the global nursing supply was really starting to bite. And, again, that was a really interesting opportunity uh, to see workforce issues at the fore and the fact that, you know, no part of the globe oper operates in isolation. Um, some of the kind of cool transformation things we were doing there involved working with TMP marketing out of the UK and Aussie expat nurses who had a backpack and a really flexible attitude coming into, into the UK. And we catch their attention on Ryanair when we were trying to actually deal with attraction, retention and um, workplace performance in the health system in the UK. Um, so all of that's a lot of background and windy history. Came back to Australia, co-founded an advisory practice uh, 12 years ago, and that practice exclusively served not-for-profits and government agencies, and that's when schools started to come and ask us for a little bit of a hand. Uh, initially, it was the big Catholic diocese here in Brisbane and in Sydney, um, and they were already really struggling with these questions around workforce attraction, retention, and the well-being of their staff. Um, and, and that then led us to start a pro bono research project in 2017. Um, some of the smaller systems of schools and some of the independent school systems were coming to us to say, yeah, there's so much change going on, we can see it, we want to respond to it, but it's really challenging to move pretty uh, established structures and ways of doing schooling to new ways of doing schooling. Um, and, th and that really began this, this adventure we're now on, Luke. Yeah. That's how I find myself here today. I did not wake up ever and plan that this is what we would be doing. <laughs> so, Claire, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of passion there, you know, for for the workforce, um, for for engagement in the workforce, and you know that sense that you know we're trading in people. Like that's that's the centre of you know your universe in terms of of impact. I'm wondering for for the audience out there if you could just sort of unpack for us you know, what People Bench is all about, you know, what's your mission, um, you know, and, and what do you bring to the sector? 
Yeah. So, well, we started as a pro bono research project because we were working with those systems who were asking questions really about what makes a high-impact school workforce. And as advisors, we went to go and do things like the literature reviews around that and we would go and harvest lots of information. That first research looked at seven years of retrospective data around not just workforce but also student outcome measures. And we were asking questions, you know, so turnover feels bad, but does it matter to kids and communities? Can we see the links in the data? And is there substantial research in that space um, so that we can actually make better decisions that are not just informed by gut feel? So as a company, PeopleBench started in research and we continue to do that. And we can talk more about some of the specific research that we do as we go through the conversation today. But it also, as we did that work, what it uncovered for us working with principals and leaders in those systems of schools was an absence of language as well as process around workforce strategy. So schools and systems are great at doing the strategic planning and they're also amazing at doing complex resourcing planning. So, you know, how am I going to get appropriate adults in right spaces to be doing the types of learning we want to do. We're fantastic at the top of the pyramid and the bottom of the pyramid. But with the background that the team and I come with, we're concerned about the middle of the pyramid. So changing things like cultures, changing things like the experience of doing work as a teacher or as any other role that sits in a school actually is medium and long-term work. So we discovered that this piece was missing and we ended up building a technology platform to start to facilitate the conversation that we previously had been having as consultants. But I guess we could identify that the conversation we were having with every school was pretty much the same conversation. And similarly with every system, pretty much the same conversation. And Truthfully, it felt unconscionable that it was only schools that could afford to do big, expensive consulting projects that would be having these discussions and that would have access to benchmarks and research and tools to be able to have more strategic and evidence-informed conversations about making their schools great places to work. So to, to answer with a shorter response, Matt, the company does do research we also support schools and school systems to introduce the processes of workforce strategy and we help with supplying tools and resources and hooking them up with data they actually already have, um, but help them make better use of that data in their schools. I'm interested in uh, a couple of the things that you said there, but I'll, I'll come back to those in a minute. Um, I'd also just like to kind of dive in a little bit to the state of the sector report that you produced last year. And I'm curious, you know, how the report uh, drives objectives for you, but also, I guess, um, you know, the high-level findings from from that type of report and who are the best users of, of kind of that type of report in your mind? So, um I think to, to preface this, as a company, we have a very clear vision around supporting the sector to transform itself by being able to make better decisions, specifically to build better workforces, because we know that that's material to achieving better outcomes for and with kids and communities. Um, you know, we know that 80% of the cost of running a school is actually its adult workforce. 
And we also know through the literature that the single greatest impact on the outcomes that we achieve for and with kids is actually that quality of the relationship with our staff and our teachers. Um, so to our minds, it makes absolute sense that this is where Certainly, if we can bring additional thought, expertise to the sector, um, that we could be co-designing these bright futures we want for staff as well as students. Um, so, yeah, I think um, getting into the type of research that we do, there's two types really. The state of the sector is sentiment analysis. Mm -hmm. So that's where we go out and we know that we can't do anything without engaging with and understanding the folks who do the work. Um, and so in education in particular, we've seen a lot of the transformation driven by policy or legislation or frameworks that have come well intended from a systemic level, um, but somehow have failed to connect really, I'll, I'll use that stronger word, failed to connect with uh, adult practitioner voices at frontline level in schools. Um, and we have some mechanisms for doing that, but I think one of the biggest differences between education and other sectors um, is that this process of engaging the workforce in a conversation about what it is like to work here um, is quite different. So the SOS or state of the sector research is a big sentiment analysis intended to capture some of those voices not just on what do we love and what do we not love about working in schools, but actually the topics around workforce transformation. So, you know, what do we think are the important levers to pull to make the experience of work a more compelling argument? Um, and, you know, some of the discouraging parts of this conversation are the things that we see in the global statistics around supply. And you can hear that in the discussion. You can see well-intentioned policy uh, uh, frameworks and ideas coming to the fore. But I guess the piece we're interested in is how we take all of those good ideas and implement them in practice. Um, so, yeah, that's really where the research from sentiment then starts to inform our work as a company. How do we make sure we actually get out of the, the clouds on this and into practical, tactical operation of the ideas for improving our workplaces? And Flo, I love that that idea about the levers. You know, it's all great to have all the policy and, and systems direction, but at the end of the day, you know, workforce engagement is about what's happening on the ground. It's about the relationships. It's around professional discourse and, and collaboration. And, you know, I've been actually reflecting on, on those levers for work place um, engagement you know what is a what does an engaged um, employee actually look like and what levers can we pull as, as school leaders um, to, to shape that engagement knowing that it's in the best interest of our students of our businesses you know etc so uh, I'm just going to dive in you know what are what are some of, of the levers um, that, that leaders can be pulling when they are shaping an engaged uh, workforce? Yeah, it's a great question, Matt. Um, and even in the language again around engagement, um, we've seen a burgeoning of products, particularly in the ed tech space, around staff engagement. And that really followed a trend in other sectors to be measuring engagement. Uh, and there's lots of literature around the concepts of engagement, what it means, um, what it connects to. 
truthfully, there's actually not much agreement <laughs> in the literature. It really depends whose paper you read and which framework you follow. Um, but if we're talking about what I think most people intend when they're speaking to the topic of engagement, we start to see some clues. And, and again, I'll probably use some, some jargon or language, but if we go to the behavioural science literature, specifically workplace psychology, we look for little clues like discretionary effort. Um, that's a, a favourite one to talk about in, under the big, broad umbrella of engagement, and we see tonnes of it in schools. So we often hear language in K-12 schooling um, around it being a vocation. We see, we hear uh, discussions about how it does or it doesn't compare to some of the parameters we have in other sectors around work hours, for example. Um, and in my experience, these are some of the areas where actually the, the absence of language and the absence of understanding what those organisational concepts mean in the literature, where we can measure, and again, we're behavioural scientists, so we're interested in things which are valid and reliable, i.e. we can test the same thing over a repeated time frame and we know we're measuring the same thing. Um, concepts of discretionary effort are great as little clues that we've got highly engaged workforces. But there are also factors to keep a sharp eye on if we shift over a little bit to some other important organisational concepts and think about things like um, our ability to have a resilient response and maintain our well-being while we're doing our work. Um, so one of the areas that we do get into significantly and, again, something I never thought I would do but we did end up doing was building a product to measure the concept of resilience in, in school workforces really only came about because we had been doing our research work looking at, again, maybe sort of dried workforce metrics like teacher attraction, retention, turnover, qualifications, diversity profile, attendance, those sorts of things. Um, when we got to COVID, of course, clients were saying, well, if you can't help me measure this well-being thing, um, I've got a problem. I'm measuring engagement at the moment, but I'm not really sure what I do with all that qualitative data I'm getting back. In a lot of ways, that feels like a big complaints list. Stuff staff had already told me in their staff meetings. Um, it's kind of hard to know what to do next. And again, it brings us back to this problem of practice. The sector is not not collecting data, we're collecting lots of data. The next learning challenge for us as a sector is what do we do with it? What action do we take? And do we have the right processes in place in our schools and our school systems to make sure that it's not all talk, that it is actually translating into action? Yeah. So I hope I answered your question a little bit there, Matt, on the topic of engagement. Um, I think the dot points are it's a broad concept. It's hotly contested. There are many subcomponents. Um, all worthy of more learning. <laughs> and I think the um, you know the, the piece there that's really highlighted um, for me is that absence of language. You know that that we we don't we haven't developed you know a frame around that, and I can't help think that's one of the significant barriers to then doing the next piece around that learning challenge of what do we actually do with it. You know, beyond we're overworked, beyond, um, you know, we've got too many kids in our classes, we've got, you know, X, Y, and Z. Let's, let, let's get yeah. sophisticated. Uh, what, are we, what are we really talking about? Um, and then how do we construct systems um, that support, you know, teachers and leaders um, and move us forward into that transformational zone, if you like? Um, so for me, that really resonates. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm glad. Thanks, Matt. Uh, you're making me, uh, I don't want to go too far off, off the, the paddock here with your question, but you're making me think about one conversation we have a lot um, as we're working with, with schools and with systems of schools. It's some of the differences in language. Again, it's a nuance specific to K-12 around um, the language of capability and capacity. Um, when we talk in other sectors about capability and capacity, we, we're very clear about the distinction in education, I often hear those two terms used interchangeably. I'd, I'd be interested in your own experiences of that. I'm, I'm getting a bit of a, a head nod here. Yeah. The reason that's relevant to the work we do is because when we know that one of the topics that educators talk about is actually work intensification and excessive workloads, it's important to have language to separate out the idea of the knowledge, skills and abilities, even attitudes that we need to have to do our work well, as opposed from the quantum of that that needs to be applied to the tasks in front of us. So if I've got the right knowledge, skills and abilities, then I'm capable. But if the job actually requires three or four adults to do it because there's so much of it, then the capacity that I create in my organisation needs to increase. So I need right capability, but I actually need more capacity, i.e. more of it, in order to get the volume of work done. Um, and that really steps us into that space that's not really been adventured into in education, and certainly not in the way other sectors have over the last two decades, around deliberate design. Um, deliberate design of the way we deliver schooling, um, the functions that we have in schools, even the services, and that's uncomfortable language for some schools, um, but the services that we deliver out of schools, all of these things, as organisational workplace psychologists, we think about it in terms of capability, but also capacity to do those things. And is, sorry, Luke, I'm just going to jump in there. Is there a piece there around the fact that we see that as a deficit model? So, you know, we, we might see that, you know, someone has capability, knowledge, skills, et cetera, but then when we sort of transfer that to the, the capacity conversation, we start seeing that as, oh, that's the deficit because they just can't keep up or whatever. Like we, we don't actually have the, have the, the critical conversation uh, around that, that quantum element of, of, of work. We just see it as, oh, that person's not good enough. But actually that's, that's mm. actually not what we're talking about. Does that resonate? Mm. Yeah, it does. It's actually making me think of a touch point in, in another one of your recent podcasts that went to air and I found it really interesting. You had a, a bit of a conversation about, you know, um, the term close of business in schools um, and that, that there is no such thing. That one to me is really interesting because that discussion around close of business, business language um, is another little example of how challenges that other sectors have had to grapple with over the last couple of decades. I think we've seen education be slower to come to, um, but which we really know now that if we don't address, we will continue to have this context, and again, I, I will use that word, crisis, uh, su sufficient supply of adults that want to work in schools and find it nourishing and exciting. And we know there's tons of them already um, but we can see in the data, if you'll allow me to be a nerd again, um, we can see in the data our ability to attract and retain folks into the sector has been increasingly challenging. And as leaders, it's our responsibility to keep our eyes on that and to genuinely address it as we go forward. Um, 
So I think that if I go back to that concept, if I look outside of the sector to sectors like health, community services, aged care, all complex, human-centred, high emotional labour, high variability industries, they would arguably say there's no close business in those sectors either. Um, the idea that as we identify that jobs start to become too big or too complex for individual superhumans to perform, that we would deliberately redesign them is the idea which in, in our experience is not as well understood or adopted in K-12 schooling as it is in other community impact sectors. I think one of the challenges with education and particularly around this idea of capacity is that we do a lot of um, slicing and dicing of roles. And, you know, a, a one FTE is often 0.8 doing this and 0.2 doing that or 0.4 doing this and 0.6 doing that or you're taking four lines on on a grid, on a timetable grid. And so we don't necessarily have the ability to um, scale, you know, larger and smaller around the capacity of that person to do more or less, because in their, in their minds, that part of a role is is only point three of my job, and how am I expected yeah. to do that in point three um, yeah. of my time? Whereas in kind of many other uh, industries, we don't segment the job as much. I think, um, and I think that brings you know, a really interesting kind of lens to education because it's it's much more difficult to to say one week to the next what should fit into that point three as a leader or that every day you must take five classes. Um, you know, in other areas it just doesn't happen as often. Um, I, I'm interested in um, going back to something that you said around you know, the well-being of, of staff and that responsibility of leaders um, for their people in terms of, you know, both understanding firstly probably their capacity and not comparing an individual's capacity to the person that went before them in that role. Um, but more broadly, um, their well-being versus their contentment, um, their contentment in the workplace and whether they are the same thing and, and how much of the well-being of a staff member for the eight hours, the 12 hours, whatever it happens to be, that they're they're at an educational, you know, school, you know, compared to the rest of the life and and how much responsibility we have for them as for their well-being individually and how much responsibility is their own. Um, and whether contentment plays a part in that uh, from a from a job point of view. I really love this question. There's a few pieces in there. I'm just going to think about how I, I want to uh, respond to, to the components. First of all, the question around contentment um, and well-being. I, I'm going to start with well-being, Luke, because, again, as a concept, it's actually, as behavioural scientists, well-being is a pretty broad term um, and there is a lot of contention about what, in fact, it means. Like if you go to WHO um, definitions around well-being, it really does describe a, a, a state which is obviously very subjective. Um, so I have a state of health and a perception that I am well. Um, as workplace practitioners, we're interested in those components, so that affective state, but we're specifically interested in how we can maintain that while we are doing a job. 
So um, there's an assumption that I'm in a job to have an impact in some way. Um, and obviously the work and jobs in schools have very specific impacts. Um, so um, this concept of well-being is a broad one, a bit like the conversation we're having a moment ago around engagement. Well-being is a pretty broad term. Actually moving ourselves along to have an understanding of what some of the components of that look like, and, and we are particularly interested in the piece of this which is around resilience. So we know that change and challenge is constant, particularly in jobs and environments where we're dealing with messy, complex humans and actually only some parts of it can be codified and put in a job description. Um, I, I'd kind of love to go down some of that other conversation that we touched on a moment ago, Luke, that might be for another day, um, in terms of when we get to point threes and point twos of jobs. As workplace practitioners, that stuff is clues to us that we actually haven't got enough clarity on the processes and the tasks that we want in jobs and that we are kind of accidentally redesigning again. So I'm probably being a little bit contentious here, but when we hear that sort of discussion in schools and systems, that's a big opportunity to have a discussion about what, how does the job look different and what other jobs, what new and emerging jobs in this workplace need to exist so that we don't have lots of bitses happening. Um, so, yeah, I'll pack that one off to the side. Coming back to the wellbeing conversation, and I think it is connected, um, our ability to feel an affective state, our moods and emotions effectively, we feel content um, is also really complex. So there's lots of things which um, will influence whether or not we report a state of contentment. Um, within both of those concepts, if I drill down into resilience, we've been working for a number of years with a beautiful framework developed by uh, Catherine McEwen, who's a psychologist in Adelaide. Um, Catherine developed a macro analysis of all of the bodies of behavioural science research, which influence an adult at work's ability to continue to perform their role in spite of the change and challenge in their context. We absolutely all have setbacks and we definitely have days where we are not at all content with our work. Um, we go through regular processes of reflecting about, hopefully we go through regular processes of reflecting about whether we are in the right place doing the purposeful work that we want to do. Um, that resilience at work scale that Catherine developed um, has been translated into seven different languages, used all over the world in impact research, specifically for sectors like education, where the emotional demands are high and the discretionary decision-making is high. Um, that framework's a really interesting one because it has seven components which link to everything from living authentically in alignment with our purposes, with our um, values, um, finding our calling, which is all about being lined up with our purpose, our ability to maintain perspective, um, and that can change given moment to moment, day to day, challenge to challenge, excitement to excitement, um, can, how are we going with our ability to maintain perspective? That can be influenced by having a head cold or an argument at home this morning uh, or not enough coffee. So all of these things are factors which influence our overall affective state and our perception of whether or not we are well, um, whether we're content and whether we're thriving at work. 
So we can use frameworks like that to get an understanding of how we individually, to go on to your, your question about responsibility, there's responsibility at every level. So ultimately we are all responsible for showing up where we believe we should be and checking in with ourselves that we are values and purpose aligned. We are um, maintaining our health and our relationships in ways that enable us to have a more resilient response. Um, but if I come back to our organisational and leadership responsibilities, we have legislative uh, legal responsibilities to provide safe workplaces physically and psychologically for those who are in our care and under our leadership. So it absolutely is the responsibility of leaders to make sure that we are setting up spaces for conversations about our physical and our mental health uh, at work. I want to I want to jump in before Matt goes because I'm I'm going to ask Matt you know to uh, in a minute after I ask you your question Matt I'm going to ask you for your effective state out of ten uh, this morning <laughs> uh, but you can think about that while I just ask a quick follow up around um, you, you you mentioned there showing up essentially showing up where we should be at, as a human and you know showing up in the workplace in a in a state that aligns with our values and our purpose and and where we feel like we should be as a human. I can't help but wonder that that, that conversation with as a leader with your team doesn't happen enough. That we don't that we're not checking in and saying, are, are we still aligned with the journey that you started on with us, you know, whether that's two years ago or 20 years ago. And if we're not still aligned, that's okay. But it's not. It, it, it's both of our maybe both of our responsibilities to understand where to from here. What can I adjust as a leader to maybe realign our values and purpose, or what? Or from your end, what are you going to do to either go? I'm going to do X, Y, Z to realign my values and purpose, or maybe the values and purpose fit is no longer there, and that's okay. But I don't think we do that very often and and maybe enough and you know potentially maybe that's why we have so many staff that are you know in a school for 20 years and may not have been happy for 10 of them mm-hmm. which which mm-hmm. which can have a you know a much you know broader effect for both students and their own well-being and other staff's well-being and and this is the domain so this space we're in at the moment is um, the opportunity. Like, to me, this is the huge opportunity and we're already seeing it um, and, you know, inspiring leaders at schools and in school systems and throughout the depth of schools because we know that leadership doesn't just come with a title. It's not just a principal or the members of the senior leadership team who are responsible for leading the way into the future in our school communities. That happens every day with every adult who shows up, whether it's the teacher in the classroom, and we all can think of examples in schools where, you know, the receptionist at the front desk had a significant impact on people's affective state um, or the bus driver or someone in the tuck shop. Um, so all of the adults in all of the jobs that come together as an ecosystem that are a school um, are relevant in the discussion and, and the space that we're in at the moment touches on some of the, the processes that we don't see as mature in K-12 schools as they are in other sectors and they're the processes to have these conversations more routinely. 
Um, they include things like having a workforce strategy, having engaged the whole workforce in the conversation about how are we going to make our school an amazing place to work um, because we know when we make it that it'll be an amazing place to learn. Um, and, and beyond having the strategy, then what are we doing to continuously look at what our service delivery model is? How are we delivering school? You know, the emergence of AI and the discussion around AI in education has been a fascinating one to watch through our occupational lens. Um, there's lots of discussion about how that will impact marking, how that might impact um, students' pr production of work, their learning processes. We're interested in how it's going to affect the roles that exist in schools. Um, if you think about, you know, I was on a call the other day watching someone unpack their new AI tool where um, the teacher will not just have 25 students in their class, but they'll have 25 AIs as well. The AI will coach the student as well as the teacher to close that gap between the student's learning requirements and needs as well as the teacher's um, visibility. My curious question is, so how do we deliberately redesign the work of the teacher and what processes do we have in place to know that that design is actually ongoing? Um, so the design piece, the question around um, constantly checking in on how each of us in our jobs are going, um, not just from a, how you're going with the workload and how you're feeling about that AI that's just come into your classroom, but actually how are you going in um, a holistic, uh, through a holistic lens when it comes to your ability, for example, to maintain a resilient response. Um, there are boring, sometimes considered boring processes of strategy and planning, um, which if we do them, you know, in the old-fashioned way, are really as dry as an old biscuit and feel about as relevant as a payroll system. Um, but if we do them in a manner which genuinely engages folks in a discussion about their own careers, where they're headed, where they derive value and nourishment from the work that they're doing, and that is not hard to find in schools. People self-select into K-12 because they are purpose-driven and are looking for values alignment. That stuff's really high. Um, but the other factors of the model, looking after my physical health, maintaining my networks of relationships, my ability to maintain perspective, um, those factors often come at a, at a cost. We can over-invest in values and purpose. That can be a contentious idea. But we actually can over-invest in those domains if it's at the cost, for example, of our physical or mental health. Um, and so having more balanced and sophisticated conversations about that is absolutely where, um, you know, our, our work has gone well into um, and where we see this amazing um, opportunity over the future horizons to improve the experience of working in schools. Fleur, I can't help think I'm going to be contentious. Go for it. That well-being is actually, um, well-being is a really unhelpful term, um, that it is broad, it's not specific, it's abstract, um, you know, how long's a piece of string. Um, and I, as a workforce, I don't think we get it at all, particularly as we are thinking about that, that, that effective state. Rather, um, a better concept is what does it mean to be a well-being um, and it's certainly something that, you know, we sort of speak about with with our leaders. And the reason I say that is it has got that reflective notion, um, that introspection, if you like, and asking questions like, what do you need to do your best work? 
What does it look like when you're doing your best work? What happens when those things aren't working for you? Um, you know, and you just sort of also then spoke about that vocation of, well, what gives you life? What gives you nourishment? And when those things aren't happening for you, what does that look like and what can we do? That's a far better um, frame in which to engage the conversation in my mind than saying, oh, we're all going to talk about well-being um, because what I fear and what I see is that we just throw programs at it. And, and somehow expect that that's going to build resilience and that's going to build greater engagement and connection, um, you know, that, that, that human quality, if you like. Um, how does that uh, piece sort of um, resonate with you this morning? That's not at all contentious for me, Matt. Um, the, the, as I say, the wellbeing language is a useful broad term for us to focus our effort and energy beyond just the, the you know, what, what are the specific tactics and operations in my job. I think it's been useful to nudge the discussion into a broader thinking, but then this is a personal opinion. I feel like its usefulness almost ends there um, because if we're not more specific about the work that we're doing and then how we enable the adults who are doing that work to have a full range of things that they need. And that does include things like capability, does include, in fact, professional development for some of the technical as well as the personal and professional uh, capabilities that we require. Um, so even, you know, I've just touched on three buckets of capabilities. The notion that we would have a capability framework, again, a, a piece of organisational infrastructure, if you would like, capability frameworks, looking at personal, professional and technical capabilities required to do our jobs are universal in other sectors. Um, it's a concept we're really only just starting to see K-12 schooling come to. Um, so, yeah, again, there are a number of points in what you've just said to me, Matt, but I don't find the, I don't find it particularly provocative to suggest that the wellbeing term has a limited usefulness um, and that it should challenge us to then understand what are the concepts within that and how do they apply to an individual and how do they apply to an organisation. So as workplace psychologists or organisational psychologists, we kind of think about organisations like educators think about students um, when we meet students in classrooms, we, we try to approach them with a zero judgment perspective and to understand where they sit with their learning and developmental milestones, particularly if I think about those early childhood environments. We're looking for some key clues about developmental milestones. And then as educators, we're looking to wrap around them and to support them with the information, the support and resources they need to get to the next developmental milestone. Um, we think about organisations in the same way. Zero judgment, but where is this organisation and where is this group of professionals at on their journey when it comes to all of the capabilities they might need to, and capacity they might need in order to get to their next level of organisational maturity and development. Um, so being able to have quantitative as well as qualitative data on which groups of staff are travelling pretty well on their seven factors um, and which groups are not and how do we wrap around them and support them in very practical ways um, so that they're able to do what they need to do. And I'll, I'll use a little case study example here. Um, so school in a high-growth area, K-12, had 300 staff, 
Um, rapid expansion went to 1,700 kids with another 1,000 online. Um, you can imagine how that transformed the size and the complexity of the workforce. Their principal previously had been able to meet them all in the coffee club and see how they were going. He could give you a verbal qualitative report on the well-being of his workforce and was very engaged. Had a, if you, I imagine if you had done an engagement survey, you'd have seen very high results at that point. As they grew, it was very difficult for him to maintain that as a leader. Um, when he actually was able to do a measurement, not just asking people what they thought they needed, but do an, a quantitative measurement against those seven factors, he was able to look not at individual teacher performance or quality. We're not interested in individual. We're interested in better decision at an aggregate level across a whole staff in, in a school ecosystem which groups of staff needed most help. We took that data and we also looked at the data around turnover. The voices when he asked staff who was struggling and what help do you need, it was actually his older women in his particular context who were able to articulate very clearly what was not working for them and what they needed to change. So to your point, the importance of asking, first of all, we would never want to lose that. But what he found in his data was that actually his highest turnover group, the folks that stayed the shortest amount of time, were his young men. And when he measured their resilience levels across the whole workforce as a cohort, he could see that they actually had the lowest levels of resilience on those seven factors too. So the wraparound and support that those folks needed was actually able to be covered just in a staff meeting. And what they really needed was a new dad's parenting group. And that's what they set up. And they could see in other qualitative feedback that sentiment or affect started to improve in that group and they were able to get a reduction in the likelihood that that group would turn over. So I use that as a very, you know, practical example of how we can introduce new processes which are data-informed but still ultimately rely on the wisdom and the excellent relationships and practice of the leader to make better decisions and then get the right sorts of support in place. And it doesn't have to be a fancy program would be the other point that I would make there. Um, we know through the leadership and management literature that staff take their biggest cues from the person they report directly to. Um, so, you know, it makes sense that when we're doing well-intended policy but we see in things like our state of the sector research this enormous perception gap with high levels of optimism and confidence from senior leadership but middle leadership actually feeling like they're being terribly crunched and not at all sharing the same levels of optimism. Um, that, again, is an awesome data set because it gives us a clue about which groups of staff need support and what type of support do they need. Um, and, and we're kind of little adventurers. We like to see that data and then dive in after it and go and improve that. <laughs> if you love what we do here at Ed Leaders, then please support us by supporting our sponsors. And today's episode sponsor is Veracross. Is your school ready for the modern age? Well, we've got good news for you. Veracross, the leading CIS provider for private and independent schools, is now available in Australia. Trusted by hundreds of schools in more than 30 countries around the world, Veracross is the only 100% cloud-based, single-record database built exclusively for private and independent schools. It's one system for your entire school. Integrations with popular edtech solutions like Schoolbox, Pixevity, and Digistorm enable seamless workflows and easy to access information. 
Plus, their in-country data center improves network speed and privacy so you can rest easy knowing your school's data is secure and protected with Veracross. Make 2023 the year your school moves to the cloud. To learn more about Veracross, visit veracross.com backslash edleaders. That's V-E-R-A-C-R-O-S-S dot com backslash edleaders. And it would mean the world to us if you or your school's director of IT check them out. Now back to today's show. Matt, I didn't hear anything about your effective state in that answer, but I'll, uh, I'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> just to kind of continue on that theme in terms of, I guess, the wrapping around, um, you know, you've, you've talked about staff that are engaged, staff that are not engaged, you know, your seven factors, kind of looking at data at an aggregate level. I can't help but think there's a, there's a connection here to culture and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the as, kind of the, I guess, the way in which, I guess the way in which culture is often described is the way things are, you know, done around here. But it's, I would contain that not many schools actually do a lot to measure it. It's probably anecdotal at best and kind of like this is the vibe, this is uh, this is Marbo, um, this is how, th- you know, this is my sense of it. Um, yeah. You know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but, I, I be- you know, you, I understand that you have a workforce culture tracker, um, you know, and I, and I wonder if you can describe a little bit more about what that looks like and, again, kind of like the data and what comes from that and what you're looking at specifically when you think about culture in a, in a K-12 environment? Mm. Um, so you're right, another fuzzy term um, and the challenges in fuzzy language um, and the research around culture is extensive. So there are lots of different bodies of, of um, literature on this. Again, different perspectives on culture from different faculties in the tertiary sector. So we have inherent bias even in our academic research, right? Um, depending on which department in the uni did the research, then there's a particular lens that, that comes to the research as well, which is another, I think, exciting part of where we're at in history right now and where we're unquestionably going, um, the multidisciplinary research that's going on, um, not just across industries but across professional disciplines, um, so the culture tool, again, something I never woke up and thought, oh, we'll build a culture tool. There's, there's numerous culture frameworks in, in place. <laughs> um, but if you think about that story that, that I've shared a little bit today about how we came to be doing this work and co-designing this work with the sector, some of the challenges with the tools that measure culture at the moment, there are a couple of obvious ones. One is that many of them assume a particular culture framework that then has to be applied in the school. And so a lot of time and effort needs to go into leadership development and learning a particular um, professor's uh, academic framework around culture. Now, when we think about introducing new ideas, it's sometimes helpful to think about how much friction is going to be in place when we introduce a new idea into an organisation. And if we put a barrier like everybody's got to learn this particular framework before we can then have a conversation about our culture, you put a lot of friction in place, especially when we're busy in schools focused on kids and communities. And, you know, when we meet with leaders in schools, we... (laughs) I remember when we first started doing the resilience work and we were doing one-on-one debriefs with principals, we learned quickly we needed to schedule 90 minutes for those interviews. The first sort of 
15 to 30 minutes was allowing the principal what they always needed, which was 15 to 30 minutes to deal with the staff, student or parent thing that they were dealing with before they could get to the call. The next 15 to 20 minutes was a conversation about why they were there which always was motivated in their interests for others. They were there to talk about how much the school and their staff needed support on resilience and wellbeing um, before we then actually got to the schedule call, which was what support they needed to get their oxygen masks on so that they could lead this agenda in their school. And I, I share that because I think it has some parallels in this discussion around culture. If we put too many friction points in front of leaders with these concepts, it actually becomes impossible for them to introduce them. And so we just carry on doing our level best without them. Um, a lot of the culture products in market put that friction in play or the second problem we see with them, and, and this is the same for many staff engagement surveys, um, what they do is they bring back a lot of data, but there's actually no one in the school who either has time, capacity, or sometimes capability, knowledge and skills to unpack that data and know what to do with it next. There's excellent intention, but there's no help to help and support leaders with this is what you do next from an organisational improvement perspective. Um, so the Culture Tracker tool we ended up building and co-designing with clients and we've tapped into the evolution of uh, technology, to be honest, Luke, um, you know, 20 plus years ago, scarily close to 30 years ago when I was doing this work in big public administration agencies, the only option was use someone's culture framework and then roll that out and measure it. Now we can use natural language processing technology and predictive analytics and the product we build will ask you to describe in one word the culture in your school and then it will ask you to type a short paragraph about um, an experience which typifies that. So you might tell me your one word is it's a friendly culture and the thing which typifies that is the fact that the principals at the front gate every day welcoming or farewelling folks as they come in and out of the school, just as an example. Um, the product then codifies that against a universal culture index, but it presents the information back to the leadership team really just in terms of a number of factors, how positive, negative or neutral is the team's views on this particular factor right now. And then that lets the leaders in the school have a conversation about, well, is that what we want it to be? Um, or do we need to double down on that in our existing structures, our existing leadership meetings, our existing team gatherings, a bit like the principal who actually just needed to know that it was his young man he needed to go and talk to. Um, the culture tracker is intended to give insights at that level because we know we have excellent leaders in schools. We've just got to give them the right data and tools to have more precise conversations around some of these workforce concepts um, and then also support with the what do I do next about it suggestions. Um, and so, you know, we've built out a suite of products that help with that piece as well. I hope that answered your question. Like, yeah, the number of times I've been in a meeting where, uh, um, you know, you present a range of, you know, data, uh, everyone around the room shakes, yep, got it yeah that's really great and then you like they walk out of the room and then nothing more happens uh with that data so i'll uh, i'll let matt jump in because i because i know he's got a question burning there <laughs> no I was, I was thinking about a question um fleur that i got asked um by a school leader recently and the question was when you walk out um to the to the the, the quad or you walk out to the school oval what clues you know are you looking for 
that speak to healthy culture and engaged workforce? What are you looking for? Great. And it was just such a great question. Um, you know, yeah. so beyond, you know, some of those, the frames that you've just described and, and the tracker that sort of collects that piece, on a day-to-day, yeah. um, you know, level, what are those nuances in behaviour that you're looking to observe that speaks to where you, your school's at? Um, I just, I thought it was a great question. I wonder what your insights might be. Yeah, I, I will admit I've got Marbo going through my head also. That's <laughs> <laughs> the vibe. Um, like... I probably answer that question more immediately in my head differently. So I, I, like anybody else, am going to walk walk onto the Oval. I'm going to have a sense of how people are experiencing the place affectively. But I am actually going to want to go back to my office and look at the data. I'm going to want to see turnover rates. I'm going to want to see um, uh, the the, um, longevity of folks in the school. I'm going to want to see career progression, I'm not looking for things like zero turnover. I'm looking for what looks like healthy periods of time that people stay in the market. I'm going to look for things in our workplace health and safety data. What level of psychological injury claim is going on in the school, for example? Um, I'm, I'm looking at sick leave. I'm looking at attendance. I'm looking at student information about how they experience their teachers um, so there's, I'm looking for a whole heap of data points and I want to aggregate them and then I want to test those data points with the wise intuition of leaders who are in the school. So I would want to come and talk to leaders about how they would interpret that data, what do they think what explains the phenomena we can see, um, and then together we can interpret that data and make a plan for what we think we should try next. And and I think the third piece to that then is, and then we do reference the academic literature. So we know there are things that make a difference. You know, well-structured organisational improvement agendas use those um, bodies of literature, try those interventions or programs and measure whether or not they're making a difference. And if they're not making a difference, we stop spending our time and our money on that because. They're finite resources. So I've very much come at this from a um, marrying the deep, wise intuitions of folks on the ground and then looking at the data. I'm just reinforcing my um, archetype as a nerd here within that. <laughs> but I, the other thing I would say, and in that culture tracker piece, without sort of going back to the product too much, we actually did pick up the concept of net promoter score, but specifically through the lens of how likely are you to make suggest this is a place to work? Okay. Yeah. I, I'm interested in, you know, you've obviously listened to, you know, episodes of the podcast and, you know, you've spoken to many, many principals, uh, you, know, in, you know, in your journey. I'm interested in where you think as a principal when the number of competing priorities that a principal has in a day-to-day or a week-to-week, month-to-month basis, where you think workplace um, planning and, you know, the things that we've been talking about fit on the list of priorities for a leader in a school right now, where do they sit in reality and where, where would you hope that they should sit potentially if they're not the same? Yeah. Yeah, no, they're not the same. And I think this is exactly some of the stuff we were touching on before. So at the moment, for some time, there's been assumptions that the principal role would 
suck that up. Um, and as it's become enormous, the deputy sucks some of it up and then we push some of that stuff down to middle management. And, and perhaps my choice of language suggests that there's something, you know, um, not well intended. I don't for a second experience that. I experience nothing but good intent for all of those folks. Um, I experience good intent in the main from the system decision makers. I've never worked with anybody in a system of schools who hasn't got out of bed every morning to ask the question, how can we make this better for the schools that are inside of our system? They share the same challenges around capability and capacity um, and the thing we can do to help everybody make better decisions is to keep the information on everyone's horizon so my answer to your question we've made assumptions that those those tasks will be consumed by existing jobs we just the culture of addition in job design where do I think that's going in the future? I hope it's going the same direction every other sector has had to go, which is the emergence of new functions and new roles in schools and school systems. And they particularly relate to the way we govern and make decisions for the school. Um, so, um, yeah, very simply, that, that's my answer to your question, Like, I think there are new emerging roles in this space where we acknowledge that these are new emerging skill sets um, and there's some stuff we can tap into from the outside um, and none of that can happen without it being merged with the deep wisdom we already have in the sector and there's actually new exciting things emerging here. Um, so the capabilities that we need to develop in schools, and again I've watched this happen in those other community impact sectors, I, I recall 25 years ago these same conversations in other sectors. You know, for example, in health, um, you know, the jobs were becoming enormous, too big to the point that we could see in the clinical indicators um, risk had been exceeded. People were staying sicker for longer, taking longer to get better or dying more frequently. That stuff's pretty compelling. Um, and so you start to create new jobs and we've seen emergence of things like nurse navigator. Um, that job didn't exist Uh a couple of decades ago, and it emerged in response to this real conundrum that folks who were trying to do clinical work were being consumed by the challenges of the carers, uh, of the recipients of services. So if you think here about in the health setting, the patient being the recipient of the service, but the carer being the person who needed more support from the organisation, um, that you can see there are parallels in that into what we hear in schools and we see in schools now, um, the challenges in managing complaints processes or unacceptable behaviour from parents. As workplace designers and, and practitioners, we're interested, we see those things as clues about what the next horizon of design needs to look like for the jobs and the work so that the experience of staff and the experience of carers um, is different going into the future because we know right now that it's really tough for both parties um, and, and we're all optimists and we know that this can be done. So the, the responsibility for getting uh, across the functions and capabilities required to do uh, service model redesign, organisational redesign and process redesign, they're not things which we've taught leaders in schools to do in the past. 
Um, and so using a blend of capability from outside of the sector and then the emergence of new roles and building capability inside of the sector is where we absolutely have to go to address some of these really pressing challenges. And so I completely agree around, you know, we actually have to lead with imagination to do this design work. We also have to create space yeah. for it. Um, and um, I just, just want to sort of tap in just a little bit bit further into some of the, the the data piece that's happening on the ground. You know, what else is getting in the way of teachers doing their best work? Uh, look, in coming into this conversation, I, you know, we often sort of get asked what are the biggest threats, et cetera, and it, or disrupt, likely disruptors to the sector. It, I almost feel like my answer is a little bit boring because it's, it's one we all know, but I also feel like we can be the frogs in the boiling pot. The teacher supply crisis hasn't happened overnight and it's not just a teacher supply crisis. If we look more broadly at the appetite of young people to work in schools, to me that is has already been and will continue to be the biggest disruptor to the sector. Um, if we don't have enough adults that want to work in schools, that's a real hair on fire problem. Um, and it's, you know, again, I'll return to my fundamentally optimistic perspective of the type of work I've always done, I have a deep belief in humans and in the phenomenal humans who are in the sector to, to know that we need to address this um, and that the really fundamental underpinnings of it are a broader conversation about making schools amazing places to work. Um, so I'm, I'm very optimistic about where this is already going and the approaching with imagination, absolutely. Um, supporting imagination with well-founded, evidence-based processes and uh, interventions, for want of a better word, and, and I use that specifically as um, language that organisational development and improvement practitioners use, tapping into that expertise and combining it with the deep nous and wisdom of leaders in the sector. I'm very optimistic that we will continue to see very innovative solutions um, I do think that technology is going to play a significant role. Um, it, classic kind of language around workforce planning and workforce uh, strategy in the past has included thinking about the future of our work and how we can build, buy, boost or bump the things we already are doing. So how can we build the capability and capacity what capability or capacity do we need to buy in um, because we don't currently have it. It's going to take a while to develop it for ourselves. So how do we get that in, build, buy, boost? What can we do that will enhance the human capability that we've got? And to me that's the most exciting space because, you know, technology has been a thing but I'm old enough to remember when it was super exciting that things were going to go into a cloud somewhere, you know, like that, that was going to be a huge transformation for us all. Um, the rate of change and the opportunity and the technology available to students as well as to staff to redesign our workplaces and schools is huge. Um, and bump, what are we going to lose? Because there's plenty of stuff we don't love. It would be great to deliberately design losing that stuff. Um, yeah, and, and, and that, to, to my mind, is really where we've, we are already heading. So this is not a depressing conversation. This is a very hope-filled and exciting conversation. My only question is how bad we will let things get and how long we will let it take to actually address those fundamentals. 
I can see Matt's up and about now, Fleur. You've given him a, a framework and a model, a 4B model that he's going to uh, take and use today. Uh, he's written that down. He's got the thumbs up. He's, he's, he's up and about all of a sudden with that. Uh, so well played to you, uh, knowing that Matt loves a good, a, a, a good framework. Um, look, before we kind of get to my favourite segment, we always love to get the crystal ball out, as you would know and kind of talk about the future of where you think education might end up in the next kind of five to 10 years. And I guess um, I'm interested from your lens in, you know, in 10 years time, what will the workforce look like in a school and, and how different will it look and what sorts of roles might we see in 10 years time um, mm. that we are not seeing right now? Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, this is the area that it's just a huge privilege to do this kind of work with the sector at the moment and it really imagination is going to be at the heart of it. I, I almost feel like it's not my place to answer it if I'm completely honest, Luke. I feel like this is emerging work. I'm happy to offer my thoughts and opinions but I don't think any of us really knows the answer. That's why it's a crystal ball. <laughs> the crystal ball, yeah. But I think what we can do is take the trends that we, we know we've seen from other sectors and all I can offer before I say these things because some of them might be controversial is that I'm, I am old enough to remember when other sectors also felt like this was impossible. So I, I just want to anchor that even that and I'm loved the, the challenge in that close of business stuff because I remember when that was being discussed in other sectors as well. Um, the extremely flexible nature of work in schools, it still feels like an absolute brain explosion to know how we will solve and I don't think we know yet but I do think we will work it out, how we look after the different diverse needs, particularly the different age cohorts in schools, and provide flexible work opportunities for the adults who are going to choose to come and be in schools in the future. Um, I think we will work this out. I think we will have jobs. I think we'll see a separation in um, the pastoral elements of educator roles from the uh, uh, deep content expertise components of educator roles. So I think we'll see roles shift and be more specific around those functions of the jobs and we might see staff niche in one or other of them in opportunistically. We would love to see it. We know colleagues who are more comfortable in one or other of those spaces. Um, so finding ways to design those jobs that are nourishing for those different types of adults, I think we will see that happen. And the, the holy grail here is that we create those more flexible jobs, um, more globalised and interconnected. I, I, we see this again already. Um, you know, the, the dark side of teacher supply, particularly if we go to rural and regional communities, and we saw this well before COVID, is being able to get the diversity of um, domains of learning into those communities. Um, we have this opportunity to tap into educators across the globe uh, to bring learning content to students um, and the inherent opportunity in that is to double down and enhance the learning experience of students and, and our learning communities in schools. So I think more globalised and interconnected um, between individual schools, between organisations outside of schools. Uh, we've seen challenges in, again, you see some of this stuff first and hardest in rural regional communities where resourcing is harder to get in play. Um, but increasingly parts of teacher or leader roles which look more and more like allied health services and not like schooling and education has been in the past. Um, I think we will see jobs which 
increasingly connect those other services into the physical location of schools. Um, I think multidisciplinary notion of work in schools and jobs in schools, we touched on that through the lens of organisational transformation and improvement. I think schools will become increasingly multidisciplinary in through, through that sort of, if you like, corporate piece of how we do schools as workplaces. Um, but I suspect we will also see that right at the front line in terms of the experience that students and parents want in learning environments, that that will become increasingly multidisciplinary. Um, the continuous learning thing, we know that education, we've been the bastion of learning and continuous learning. I think the next layer of challenge in that for schools is actually that it becomes about them as organisations. Um, and, and that's a big shift from how schools have seen themselves to date. Um, we've talked a lot today about data. I think increasingly we've seen um, the capability in schools and jobs and staff in schools around data really do a big hockey curve up as we've got focused in on student data uh, over the last decade. The next horizon of that is actually on our organisational data and how we make schools these really thriving environments for all of the adults that come as well as the students that come together to make a school be a thing. Um, and then I think that automation, AI, machine learning, I think the continued evolution in that space is really going to influence what working in schools is going to be like in the future too. That's a pretty solid answer there. Um, yeah, I'm impressed uh, with that as a crystal ball. Uh, a little bit to, to unpack there, but um, I know that we've gone over time already, <laughs> so we're going to get to my favourite segment. It's six in 60 seconds. One word or idea. Are you ready to roll? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the most interesting PD you've ever done. This was hardest. I'm just going to say an executive leadership development experiential thing, which was awesome early in my career, and AICD, governance, super nerdy and, yeah, very useful. If you could change one rule or one thing in education, what would it be? This is hard because I know it's not the dominant view, but in the past perhaps has been that you have to have been a teacher to have interest and contribution to the sector. The most important capability we should be teaching young people. Oh, <laughs> I don't feel like it's my place to answer again. I'm going, oh, how do I answer this one? I did sneak it in there. I've never actually oh, asked that yeah, before. You but, did. You've yeah. totally curveballed me. Oh, I'm going to go back to my fundamental bias here, actually regulating their brain health. The best thing you do to create an amazing culture at People Bench. Oh, it's going to sound cliche, but I've been blessed with amazing humans that are so much more clever than I am at any of the things we do as a company. They are all here at, at, as part of the team. But we love music. I know I'm giving you two answers. We just love music here culturally. So we use music as an um, expression of stuff that's going on, our excitement, our vibe, our, yeah, Music's very embedded in our culture. Okay, I'm going to take a detour there. What song are you putting on after this podcast? Oh, no, that's hard too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can edit this, right? No. <laughs> no. It's live. Actually, it's live. I don't know if we told you that. We're streaming live today. No, we're not. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, no. Now I'm bouncing all over the place in my brain. I'm having a real Ally McBeal moment showing my age again. I'm, I'm going with Eye of the Tiger. Oh, oh, oh yes. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Oh, you, 
<laughs> One book worth reading? Oh, um, just recently finished What She Said by Monica um, Lunen. It's just a beautiful compilation of phenomenal speeches given by women um, over the uh, centuries, actually. Phenomenal authors, thought leaders, and Monica's ability to make them current and how relevant they all are to right now. It's a super important read. Grab that one. And one person you'd like to hear us interview on the podcast? Um, I'm going to go, okay, so super education related. I have a bit of a celebrity crush on, um, I would love to hear Eddie Wu talk on his views on the topic of working in schools. I had the opportunity to listen to Eddie and Pussy Salberg at the Opera House talking about the future of mathematics and the whole time I was just sitting there going, yes, but I want to hear you talk about the future of work. Um, so I would love for you to make that conversation happen. That would be great. Professional diversity for the win. I would just love to see a heap of views brought together on this to, to build the future we all want for the sector. All right. Well, Fleur. You answered two questions with two answers, uh, <laughs> most of them with more than, uh, you know, a couple of seconds of answer. So I was going to give you a five out of ten for that. Oh, no. But then you <laughs> said I the tiger. So, well, you know, I'm going to lift you up to a six out of ten. So well played today. Oh, appreciate, <laughs> <you>. <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> well, that brings an end to our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed our little chat with Fleur. Matt. Closing comments. Hit us with them. I know you've got them. Uh, I'm well. I'm overwhelmed. Um, I feel like I've been channeling um, my inner Fleur for the last few weeks, talking about workforce engagement and the fact that we need to be doing a lot of redesign work. And don't wait for national reform agendas to give you the answer. That it's actually up to schools to do that work uh, around reshaping their workforce. Um, so I'm just, you know, I'm in awe and and really excited about our conversation this morning. So I'm going to be really brief. I'm just going to say that I love us talking about shaping the workforce of the future, that it is our business, that it is about redesign for transformation. Um, and I, and you know, maybe it was my word to start with, but we take our imagination, we go to the data, we we draw on those wise experts, um, and then we do that intervention. Of course, uh, the B framework, build by uh, boost um, and bump, um, I'm using that today. I've got. To, I know I have a conversation around this happening uh, later this afternoon, um, and so I'm just going to keep channeling that inner fleur um, in my work. So thank you this morning. Oh, I'm so pleased that 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 idea has resonated. Yeah, go and make it happen. Absolutely. <laughs> and for me, I really like that notion of the sophisticated conversations um, mm. that we should be having more regularly with our staff. You know, if it's not, you know, on a once or twice a year, then we then it should be a little bit more often. But aligning those conversations and kind of taking a step back and kind of saying holistically through, you know, many lenses, how are you doing? Not just how you're going. Yeah, I'm good, but diving in a little bit deeper than that. And I think that's a really important thing for leaders to think about when they're going about uh, you know, you know, integrating with their staff. Um, I liked you a bit about understanding the friction understanding the friction when we're thinking about different types of um, programs or different types of kind of frameworks that we want to bring in. And I think that's a really important thing that sometimes we don't spend enough time thinking about where staff are at culturally together um, to understand that friction before you start down a new journey. 
I also like just, you know, it kind of came up through and through, but that notion of looking at organisational data, um, you know, yes, we have been on a journey in schools with student data, but I think it, it's probably pretty rare that that leaders are thinking about their organisational data, unless it's a once every five year type survey, where again, you kind of, it's not maybe drilled down enough to understand the nuance of it's this particular segment of staff that are finding this. So address it with those staff, not the whole, not the whole staff body. And I think um, there's something for leaders to take away there around understanding organizationally and, you know, in silos within your organization, how, how data looks and what you can do with that data and the insights that you can gain from that data. So there's a couple of points from me, but um, look, I really want to say thank you for giving up your time to be on the podcast today. I know the audience out there is going to have gained a lot from this conversation. And I know, you know, like we probably only got to half the questions. So maybe there's a, a part B episode at some point in the future, talking a little bit more about the future. Um, but for the audience out there, if they want to connect with you, where's the best place that they can find you on the internet? Yeah, well, connect with me anytime on LinkedIn and, um, you know, follow along on the people bench part of the LinkedIn world as well, because we tend to try and get some content up there. Um, we also do have a um, community of practice, which folks are very welcome to join. That's where you can sign up. So um, follow the dots or just hop to our website, peoplebench.com.au. And um, yeah, we love engaging with folks to hear about where they're at on this organisational maturational journey. Um, and, and that's the stuff we can help with where you're at and how you get to the next step. Well, excellent. Please remember, audience out there, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and don't forget to share the love. Tell a few of your colleagues that you should be listening to this episode of Ed Leaders and particularly your principal or your HR person that they should be listening to this particular episode if they want to understand the nuance of um, the workplace a little bit better. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you're not already signed up for the Ed Leaders newsletter, you are missing out. We publish every couple of weeks and it's jam-packed with nuggets to level up your school leadership game. Check out edleaders.com.au for more details. Thanks again to the sponsors of today's show. And Matt and I would be very, very grateful if you could spend a few minutes going to their website, checking them out, clicking on their links as they help us to make this professional learning free for you. You can connect with Ed Leaders and both of us on LinkedIn, where we'll keep you up to date with all the latest of what we're up to. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Go well. 